0: This episode of the Ortho Bullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to cervical radiculopathy, which is one of the topics we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, A 63-year-old male has a long-standing history of neck pain. Recently, he developed pain radiating into his right shoulder and arm, as well as numbness and tingling in his right small finger. He also reports decreased grip strength. On physical exam, he has a positive shoulder abduction provocative test, weakness with distal phalanx flexion of the right middle and index fingers, and weakness to thumb extension. At which vertebral level is there likely pathology compressing the nerve root? And the choices are one c 5 2 c C5-6, 3 c 7 4 c 4C7T1, and 5T1T2. So this patient presents with a radiculopathy of the C8 nerve root caused by a disc herniation at the C7-T1 level. So the correct answer to this question is 4, C7-T1. A sensory and motor examination of the hand can be an important method to differentiate between the level of a cervical radiculopathy and to differentiate between a cervical radiculopathy and a peripheral neuropathy. A C7 radiculopathy will present with paresthesias of the index and middle finger. It may also present with weakness of elbow extension, wrist flexion, and wrist pronation. C8 radiculopathy presents with paresthesias in the small finger, weakness with distal phalanx flexion of the middle and index fingers, and thumb extension weakness. Re et al. provide a review of cervical radiculopathy. They report that cervical nerve root compression may occur due to multiple etiologies. An acute soft disc herniation may impinge on the exiting nerve root at its takeoff from the spinal cord or as it traverses the neuroforamen. Chronic disc degeneration with disc height loss may cause annular bulging without frank herniation. Disc height loss may result in loss of foraminal height. Combined with superior migration of the superior facet joint from the subjacent vertebra can lead to subsequent foraminal root compression. Vicari Juntura et al. performed a study to validate the utility of clinical tests in the diagnosis of root compression in cervical disc disease. They evaluated neck compression, axial manual traction, and the shoulder abduction test. They found all tests were highly specific but had low sensitivity. They concluded that despite low sensitivity, these tests are a valuable aid in the clinical examination of a patient with neck and arm pain. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one is incorrect as a herniation at the C45 level would involve the C5 nerve root and would likely present with lateral arm pain, weakness in shoulder abduction, and a diminished biceps reflex. Answer two is incorrect as a herniation at the C56 level would involve the C6 nerve root and would likely present with radial forearm pain, weakness with elbow flexion and wrist extension, and a diminished brachioradialis reflex. Answer 3 is incorrect as a herniation at the C6-7 level would involve the C7 nerve root and would likely present with middle finger pain, weakness in elbow extension and wrist flexion, and a diminished triceps reflex. And finally, answer 5 is incorrect as a herniation at the T1-T2 level would involve the T1 nerve root and would likely present with ulnar forearm pain and weakness of hand intrinsics. Moving on to the next question, A 30-year-old female reports neck and right shoulder pain for the last three weeks following a bicycle accident. She complains of pain radiating from her neck into her right forearm and a sensation of numbness in her thumb. On physical examination, she has 4 plus out of 5 strength to elbow flexion, 3 plus out of 5 strength to wrist extension and supination. Wrist flexion, pronation, shoulder abduction, and thumb extension show normal strength. At which level is a disc herniation likely present and which nerve root is likely affected? And the choices are 1, C4-5 and the C5 nerve root is affected. 2, C5-6 and the C5 nerve root is affected. 3, C5-6 and the C6 nerve root is affected. 4, C6-7 and the C6 nerve root is affected. And 5, C6-7 and the C7 nerve root is affected. So this patient presents with the radiculopathy of the C6 nerve root, which would be caused by a disc herniation at the C5-6 level. So the correct answer to this question is 3, C5-6, with the C6 nerve root affected. This is supported by numbness in the thumb, partial weakness to elbow flexion, and weakness to wrist extension and wrist supination caused by weakness of the brachioradialis, which is innervated by C6. A C6 radiculopathy presents with paresthesias in the radial forearm, thumb, and index digit. Patients may have weakness in the biceps and wrist extensors. Patients will also likely have a diminished brachioradialis reflex when compared to the contralateral side. In the cervical spine, there is a mismatch between the pedicle and its associated nerve root. For example, the C6 nerve root travels above the C6 pedicle. In the lumbar spine, the L5 nerve root travels below the L5 pedicle. Re et al. reviewed cervical radiculopathy. They note that the natural history of cervical radiculopathy is favorable. Non-surgical treatment is the initial treatment of choice in most patients. They note that the literature does not define a regimen of effective non-surgical care. They conclude that it remains unclear whether non-surgical management actually improves on the natural history of the disorder or simply treats the symptoms as the disorder runs its course. Davidson et al. observed a series of patients with cervical monoradiculopathies due to extradural compression in whom clinical signs included relief of radicular pain with shoulder abduction. They report that pain relief obtained with this maneuver seems to occur by decreasing tension on the nerve root. They conclude that if patients exhibit this sign, it's an indicator of significant cervical extradural compression and radicular disease. Moving on to the next question, Which of the following physical exam findings supports the diagnosis of cervical radiculopathy? And the choices are 1. Shoulder abduction test, 2. Lateral forearm pain with resisted extension of the long fingers, 3. Intrinsic wasting, 4. Hoffman sign, and 5. Inverted brachioradialis reflex. So the shoulder abduction test is a maneuver that has been found to be specific for the diagnosis of cervical radiculopathy. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Shoulder abduction test. Two helpful tests for diagnosing cervical radiculopathy include the spurling test and the shoulder abduction test. Patients with a positive shoulder abduction sign will have improvement of their symptoms with elevation of the arm above the head. This is an important test to distinguish cervical pathology from other sources of shoulder slash arm pain. Re et al. Note that cervical nerve roots course at forty five degree angles when entering the neural foramina. This occurs in a ventrolateral direction across compressive lesions. They postulate that abduction of the shoulder may cause relief as a result of decreased tensile stresses in the nerve root adjacent to the compressive lesion. Vacari Gentura et al. investigated validity of the shoulder abduction test in the diagnosis of cervical radiculopathy. They found this test was highly specific but had low sensitivity. Thus, they recommend this test as a valuable aid in the clinical examination of a patient with neck and arm pain to quickly go over the incorrect answers. Answer two is incorrect as lateral forearm pain with resisted extension of the long fingers is consistent with the diagnosis of lateral epicondylitis. Answer three is incorrect as intrinsic wasting is most consistent with ulnar neuropathy, not cervical radiculopathy. Answer four is incorrect as a Hoffman sign is indicative of an upper motor neurologic disorder. It is noted to be positive when there is flexion of the other digits after flicking the distal phalanx of the long digit. This may be seen in cervical myelopathy. And answer 5 is incorrect as an inverted brachioradialis reflex is seen when tapping on the distal brachioradialis leads to a reflexive contraction of the finger flexors despite a diminished brachioradialis reflex. This is consistent with cervical myelopathy. Moving on to the next question. Of the following signs or findings, which one is most consistent with the diagnosis of cervical radiculopathy? And the choices are 1. Spurling sign, 2. Hoffman sign, 3. Clonus, 4. Inverted Brachioradialis Reflex, and 5. Babinski sign. So the Spurling sign is elicited by extending the neck and having the patient rotate his or her head towards the side of the symptoms. Reproduction of symptoms, including those of radicular pain, suggests cervical nerve root compression as a contributing factor. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Spurling sign. The remaining signs and clinical findings are seen with cervical myelopathy. The Hoffman sign is elicited by flicking the terminal phalanx of the third or fourth finger. A positive response is seen as reflex flexion of the terminal phalanx of the thumb. The inverted brachioradialis reflex is seen when the brachioradialis tendon is tapped and a diminished brachioradialis reflex is noted, but reflex contraction of the finger flexors is seen. Moving on to the next question, which of the following factors is most likely to contribute to pseudoarthrosis in a patient who has undergone a single-level anterior decompression and fusion procedure for the treatment of cervical radiculopathy? And the choices are 1. Sagittal alignment, 2. History of diabetes mellitus and tobacco use, 3. Performance of an uninstrumented fusion, i.e. no plate and screws, 4. Use of allograft instead of autograft, and 5. Fusion at the C3-C4 level. So various factors affect the pseudoarthrosis rate in patients who undergo anterior cervical decompression and fusion. Patient factors including history of smoking and history of diabetes mellitus have been shown to significantly increase pseudoarthrosis rates. The literature has been mixed with regard to fusion rates for allograft versus autograft, especially for one-level fusions. In that category, there is minimal, if any, difference. Similarly, several authors have shown higher rates of fusion with uninstrumented single level rather than instrumented anterior cervical decompressions and fusions. The level, i.e. cranial or caudal, of fusion and sagittal alignment have not been correlated with fusion rates. But the correct answer to this question is 2. History of diabetes mellitus and tobacco use is most likely to contribute to pseudoarthrosis in a patient who has undergone a single-level anterior decompression infusion procedure for the treatment of cervical radiculopathy. Moving on to the next question, a 38-year-old man reports right upper extremity pain that radiates from his neck to his anterior arm, dorsal radial forearm, and into the index finger. Examination reveals weakness of the biceps muscle group and loss of his brachioradialis reflex on that side. At which level is he most likely to have a right-sided cervical disc protrusion on an MRI scan? And the choices are 1 C4 C5, 2 C5 C6, 3 C6 C7, 4 C6 vertebral body, and 5 far lateral C6 C7. So the patient has a typical right C6 radiculopathy based on his history and physical examination. A posterolateral disc protrusion at the C5-C6 level is most likely to cause a C6 radiculopathy because the C6 nerve roots exit just above the C6 pedicle and therefore would be compressed by a right-sided C5-C6 disc protrusion. In contrast to the lumbar spine, far lateral disc protrusions are not typically described in the cervical spine. But the correct answer to this question is 2, C5-C6. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is a significant risk factor for airway complications after anterior cervical surgery? And the choices are 1. Smoking history, 2. Pulmonary disease, 3. Absence of drainage from surgical drains, 4. Surgical time of more than 5 hours, and 5. Myelopathy. So in a study of 311 patients undergoing anterior cervical surgery only, a surgical time of more than five hours and exposure of four or more vertebral bodies involving C4 or higher were found to be risk factors for postoperative airway complications. Surprisingly, preoperative pulmonary status, smoking history, absence of drainage, and myelopathy were not associated with airway complications. So the correct answer to this question is for surgical time of more than five hours. Moving on to the next question, a 52-year-old male presents with a chief complaint of left arm pain following a tennis match. He reports the symptoms began three weeks ago and have been present ever since. He describes diffuse, moderate pain that radiates from the base of his neck to his forearm. The pain is relieved by elevating his left arm. He also describes numbness and tingling in his index, long, and ring fingers. He denies any numbness or tingling in his thumb. On physical exam, he is noted to have decreased triceps strength on the affected side and a decreased triceps reflex. These symptoms are most likely caused by, and the choices are 1, a left paracentral disc herniation at C5-C6, 2, a left far lateral foraminal disc herniation at C5-C6, 3, a left far lateral foraminal disc herniation at C6-7, four, a left paracentral disc herniation at C7-T1, and five, compression of a peripheral nerve within the arcade of struthers. So the patient presents with symptoms of left C7 cervical radiculopathy. Both a paracentral and far lateral foraminal disc herniation can compress the C7 nerve root due to the horizontal anatomy of the cervical nerve roots. So the correct answer to this question is three, a left far lateral foraminal disc herniation at C6-C7. To quickly review, cervical radiculopathy is defined as pain and or sensory motor deficit as a result of injury or compression of one or more of the cervical nerve roots. Despite the significant interweaving of the cervical nerve roots in the brachial plexus, there are physical exam findings that are typical of individual nerve distributions. Wrist flexion, elbow extension, sensation to the middle finger, and the triceps reflex are all relatively specific for a 7 radiculopathy. It's postulated that disc herniation and neural compression causes an inflammatory response and production of cytokines such as IL-6, IL-1, TNF-alpha, bradykinin, substance P, and various prostaglandins. Approximately 75% of patients with cervical radiculopathy will improve with non-operative management, which consists of activity modification, short-term immobilization, NSAIDs, physical therapy, and possibly steroid injections. Karaman et al. performed a retrospective chart review of 235 patients who underwent anterior cervical surgery over a 10 year period. Three out of the 235 patients developed dysphonia, which is likely related to a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury during this period, and all recovered within a three month period. The authors conclude that most cases of dysphonia after anterior cervical surgery are likely temporary. Davidson et al. report on a case series of 22 patients with severe cervical radiculopathy they found that 15 of these patients had symptom relief with abduction of their arm above their head, otherwise known as a shoulder abduction relief test. Of the 15 that had a positive shoulder abduction test, 13 later required surgery, while the other nine patients were eventually managed conservatively, indicating the value of this maneuver as diagnostic of significant cervical extradural compressive radiculopathy. Moving on to the next question, The most common neurologic injury following an anterior cervical discectomy and fusion is injury to which of the following structures? And the choices are 1. Recurrent laryngeal nerve, 2. Superior laryngeal nerve, 3. C5 root, 4. Spinal cord, and 5. Sympathetic chain. So the most common neurologic injury in ACDF is injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. It's most vulnerable on the right because it crosses from lateral to midline more cephalad in the incision after it passes under the subclavian artery. Conversely, on the left, the course is more caudal because it passes under the aortic arch, which is a more caudal structure. The superior laryngeal nerve runs along with the superior thyroid artery in the upper cervical spine, putting it at risk during surgical procedures on the upper cervical spine, which are less commonly performed. A C5 root palsy more commonly occurs as a result of multi-level posterior decompressive procedures, possibly because of its short transverse takeoff from the cord. The sympathetic chain lies on top of the longest coli and can be injured if retractors are not placed under the longest coli muscle. But the correct answer to this question is one, recurrent laryngeal nerve is the most common neurologic injury following an ACDF. Moving on to the next question. A patient has a C6, C7 herniated nucleus pulposus. What is the most likely distribution of symptoms? And the choices are one, pain in the posterior neck and scapula, numbness over the clavicle, and weakness of the head and neck extensors. 2. Pain in the shoulder, numbness over the lateral shoulder, weakness of the deltoid. 3. Pain at the elbow, numbness over the thumb and index finger, weakness of the biceps and wrist extensors. 4. Pain at the forearm and hand, numbness of the middle finger, weakness of the triceps and finger extensors. And 5. Pain at the wrist, numbness in the little and ring fingers, and weak finger flexors. So a C6-C7 herniated nucleus pulposus is most likely to produce a C7 radiculopathy resulting in pain at the forearm and hand, numbness of the middle finger, and weakness of the triceps and finger extensors. The other answers represent sequelae of symptomatic disc herniations at C3-C4, which is what one pain in the posterior neck and scapula, numbness over the clavicle, and weakness of the head and neck extensors represents, C4, C5, which is what answer 2, pain in the shoulder, numbness over the lateral shoulder, and weakness of the deltoid represents. C5, C6, which is what answer 3, pain at the elbow, numbness over the thumb and index finger, and weakness of the biceps and wrist extensors represent. And C7, T1, which is what answer 5, pain at the wrist, numbness in the little and ring fingers, and weak finger flexors represents. Moving on to the next question, A 35-year-old woman reports an 8-week history of neck pain radiating to her right upper extremity. She denies any history of trauma or provocative event. Examination reveals decreased pinprick sensation in her right middle finger, otherwise sensation is intact bilaterally. Finger flexors and interossei demonstrate 5 out of 5 motor strength bilaterally. Finger extensors are 4 out of 5 on the right and 5 out of 5 on the left. The triceps reflex is 1 plus on the right and 2 plus on the left the most likely diagnosis is a herniated nucleus pulposis at what level? And the choices are 1, C34, 2, C45, 3, C56, 4, C67, and 5, C7T1. So the patient's neurologic examination is consistent with a C7 radiculopathy on the right side. In a patient with this symptom complex, in the absence of trauma, a cervical disc herniation is the most common etiology for a C7 radiculopathy. There are 8 cervical nerve roots and the C7 nerve exits at the C6-C7 disc space and is most frequently impinged by a disc herniation at this level. So the correct answer to this question is 4C6-C7. Moving on to the next question. A 56-year-old mechanic has had pain in the hypothenar region of his dominant right hand for the past 6 months. He reports weakness in his grip and pain is worse with activity. Which of the following examination findings is most suggestive of a cervical etiology? And the choices are 1. Relief of symptoms with shoulder abduction that is placing the hand over the head, 2. Hypothenar atrophy, 3. Reproduction of pain with hyperflexion and contralateral rotation of the head, 4. Positive Tenel sign at the levator scapulae, and 5. Subluxable ulnar nerve at the cubital tunnel. So hypothenar atrophy is a nonspecific sign that can be seen in ulnar neuropathy, C8 radiculopathy, or even cervical myelopathy. However, the atrophy usually is not unilateral and includes other muscle groups. The Spurling test is an excellent method of eliciting cervical radicular pain, but involves hyperextension and ipsilateral rotation of the cervical spine, resulting in nerve root compression by reducing the cross-sectional area of the ipsilateral neuroforamen. Tenel's sign at the levator scapulae, if present, is indicative of an upper cervical that is C3 or C4 radiculopathy. A subluxable ulnar nerve at the cubital tunnel, while often asymptomatic, points towards cubital tunnel syndrome as an etiology for this patient's pain. The shoulder abduction relief, SAR sign, is relief of the upper extremity pain with shoulder abduction, and this is virtually pathognomonic of cervical radiculopathy because this maneuver results in relaxation of a compressed and or inflamed cervical nerve root. The SAR sign is the converse analog of the straight leg raising sign in the lumbar examination for lumbar radiculopathy as it relieves tension in the nerve root, thereby relieving symptoms. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Relief of symptoms with shoulder abduction that is placing the hand over the head is most suggestive of a cervical etiology. Moving on to the next question. A 45-year-old man reports that he awoke two weeks ago with severe pain in his right arm. Examination reveals weakness in the biceps, brachialis, and wrist extensors. There is decreased sensation in the thumb and index finger and a diminished brachioradialis reflex. Assuming this patient has a posterolateral herniated nucleus pulposus, what level is involved? And the choices are 1, C2-3, 2, C3-4, 3, C4-5, 4, C5-6, and 5, C6-C7. So this is a classic C6 nerve injury, and it's most likely the result of a herniated nucleus pulposus at C5-C6. The C5 nerve root controls the elbow flexors, shoulder abductors, and external rotators. The C7 nerve root controls the elbow extensors, wrist pronators, and the triceps reflex. So the correct answer to this question is four, C5, C6. And the final question for this review session, during an anterior discectomy infusion at C2-3, there is a concern for an injury to the left hypoglossal nerve. What physical findings would be expected if this were the case? And the choices are one, tongue deviation to the left when extruded, two, tongue deviation to the right when extruded, three, tosis on the left side of the face, four, ptosis on the right side of the face, and five, change in voice. So the hypoglossal nerve is the 12th cranial nerve and innervates the tongue muscles. If there is a unilateral injury to the hypoglossal nerve, the tongue will deviate towards the side of the injury. In this question, there is concern for an injury to the left hypoglossal nerve, so you would expect tongue deviation to the left. Horner's syndrome is characterized by ptosis, anhidrosis, meiosis, anaphthalmos, and loss of ciliospinal reflex on the affected side of the face. It is caused by injury to the sympathetic chain, which can occur during an anterior approach to the neck. The recurrent or inferior laryngeal nerve is a branch of the vagus nerve or the tenth cranial nerve that supplies motor function and sensation to the larynx. A unilateral injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve may lead to voice changes, including hoarseness. Bilateral nerve damage can result in breathing difficulties and aphonia, which is the inability to speak. But the correct answer to this question is 1 tongue deviation to the left when extruded is representative of an injury to the left hypoglossal nerve. That's all for this question review session about cervical radiculopathy. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes.